Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. Today, we're going to be having another discussion about Canada's euthanasia and assisted suicide regime. Those of you who follow the news on this issue will know that it seems sometimes like we get a new horror story almost every week. We recently saw a news article revealing that five Canadian veterans have now been proactively offered assisted suicide in response to their requests for assistance. We have the the Justice Minister of Canada admitting that assisted suicide can now be offered to those who perhaps don't even request it or don't have the capacity to request it. It honestly seems like just when things can't get worse that this assisted suicide regime metastasizes even further. We've had a couple of discussions over the years on this issue on this podcast. Most recently, we talked to Alex Schadenberg of the Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. We're going to be talking about this in the future as we stay up to date on what's going on because something desperately needs to change here in Canada. We're seeing the glamorization of suicide in a way that we don't even understand. We don't fully realize yet what the impact of this is going to be on youth, especially during a a mental health epidemic, especially as services get increasingly difficult for people to access, especially if economic conditions worsen. Because we're already seeing time and time again these stories coming out in major Canadian newspapers where people are discussing how assisted suicide is a backstop. It's their solution to poverty. I can't afford to live, so instead I'll die. In fact, one Manitoba woman actually said the reason she opted for assisted suicide is because she couldn't get the palliative care and the help that she wanted. And she actually said in her obituary published posthumously, she said, if if I'd had more help, I could have had more time. And so to talk about this, I contacted Dr. Ramona Coelho, She is a family medicine practitioner, and she's been an expert witness before the House and Senate committees examining Bill C-7. And she's also a founding member of Physicians Together with Vulnerable Canadians. I've heard her speak before. She is one of a handful of medical professionals in Canada who have been out front on this issue, lobbying about it, writing about it trying to warn about what's going to take place. She is, to my mind, one of the heroes on this issue. I really admire her work. And recently, she and three others had an article published in the World Medical Journal titled Normalizing Death as, quote, Treatment in Canada. Whose suicides do we prevent and whose do we abet? That's a a searing indictment of what we see unfolding in Canada right now. So to get an update on what's taking place and to take a look at what we might do to respond to this unfolding crisis, here is my conversation with Ramona. So just to give our listeners a bit of background, maybe you could start by telling us how you got interested in this particular issue and some of your background on this issue, because I've seen you quoted on it all over the place for quite a few years now. Well, probably just because of the type of medicine that I do and the population that I take care of is why this issue worries me a lot. I'm from McGill. I'm from Quebec. And I first practiced medicine. Half of my hours were home care for people who were shut-ins, people who had severe disabilities or were dying of organ failure, but with mental health addictions who needed to be checked on at home. So people who often found themselves struggling with poverty, marginalization. And then when I moved to London, Ontario, here my practice just naturally attracted a certain population because of the kind of care that I offer. 
I take care of many refugees. Majority of my patients have a disability. I take care of a large group of men who've struggled with criminal charges or been in and out of prison. Groups that find themselves often on the margins of society. And so when the government decided to legislate death as a solution for suffering, especially now outside the end-of-life context for life suffering, that alarms me because it can be the work of months or years, but patients do regain their joy and their meaning in life. And if we offer death as a treatment, the potential loss of lives of beautiful people would just be tragic. And that's what we're seeing. Now, like this issue is particularly personal for me because there's a lot of members of my family who have struggled with depression. My friend Andrew Lawton of, of True North recently published a column explaining that if this current regime had been in existence 10 years ago when he attempted suicide, he would have been successful because he would have been given a lethal injection by a trained medical professional as opposed to you know having to basically sloppily try and take his own life with pills. And thank God he, of course, survived that. Since then, of course, he's established a, a career as a journalist. He's got a best-selling book. You know, he married another lovely journalist. And one of the things that kind of staggers me about the situation we're in is everybody knows somebody who has experienced suicidal ideation and everybody knows somebody that if that person had had the service available might have taken their life and their life would be infinitely poor for it. Like they would be living with the grief and the trauma of having lost someone so soon. How did this become so normal, at least in what it seems to me to be so, so quickly in just a couple of years? Well, I think there's a lot of public misunderstanding about this issue or lack of knowledge. This legislation was rolled out, backed by a very strong ideology during COVID. And so it didn't dominate headlines. I think most people I speak to don't even are not even aware that you can end your life with the help of a health professional right now, just if you have a disability. So I have patients who have a disability. They're asking to end their lives for other reasons, things that all of us suffer from, like relationship breakdown or poverty or str other struggles, but they get it right now because they have a disability. And like you said, very soon, people who have mental illness solely will also be able to qualify. What is really worrisome about this is that if you look at jurisdictions in Europe, for example, that allow MAID, and not, not, I'm not even talking about assisted suicide and euthanasia in outside the end-of-life context, even just for end-of-life context, those regions have higher suicide rates as well. So non-assisted suicide rates. So this kind of idea that MAID is a sanitized answer to suicide for people and the potential of increasing messages of despair, of contagion of suicide, of a trauma, they're increasing a lot. And Minister Lametti, I don't know if you saw that, Jonathan, but he was quoted in the Toronto Star, I think it was earlier this week or now it's last week, mm -hmm. saying, remember that suicide is generally available to people. This is a group he's talking about made for mental illness within the population who, for physical reasons and possibly mental reasons, can't make them choice themselves to do it themselves. And ultimately, this provides a more humane way for them to make the decision if they weren't able to do it in some other way. So what he's saying is he's admitting, the government is admitting, is that this is a sanitized, state-facilitated suicide regime. And this will not make suicides less. This will not make a go away. It will increase trauma to the whole population and likely increase suicides for all of us. Again, one of the things that it's hard to know how to draw attention to this when 
what they're saying publicly is so egregious. Right? I read the comments that you're referring to in the Star, and Lametti was saying the quiet part out loud. Right? Those of us who oppose these practices have been saying that this is where this is headed for years. But now he's saying it in one of Canada's largest newspapers, and it doesn't seem to make much of an impact. So how do we really show people what is going to happen so that we don't have more families who get the phone call that Alan Foley's family in B.C. got, where they took him into the hospital for a psychiatric episode? And, you know, he was offered made while he was there. And we now know that up to five Canadian veterans have been proactively offered made. We know that there are people, including the Quebec College of, of Surgeons, who want to offer made to what they call mature minors, which is basically children. So Jonathan, actually, it's the federal government that wants to expand it to mature minors. The Quebec College suggested also for babies. They said mature minors is not enough. It should also be babies with disabilities. So when they're saying the most horrifying predictions, like those who have warned against these regimes said this is where we could head. And they said, no, that could never happen. And now it's happening and it's being talked about very publicly. And it feels like the international press and international watchdogs are taking this more seriously than the average Canadian, or do I have that wrong? Well, I definitely know. My sister lives in Sweden, and she knows this work that I've been trying to do for years. And she mentioned, like, Europe is appalled by Canada's made regime. Um, so definitely they're hearing about it in Europe. I was invited to write that World Medical Journal article after speaking in Washington, D.C. at a meeting about what's happening in Canada in Canada, I do believe the communities that are being affected are starting to realize, I mean, I think they've always been very well aware, the disability orgs like Inclusion Canada, the Vulnerable Persons Center, they've done an amazing job of speaking on these points. But I think more and more, it's trickling down to the community. I do believe that just right now, even I'm in touch with several reporters from mainstream large newspapers that are planning to run stories and just asking for comments. So I do believe that this is starting to pick up in the public eye in Canada. Will it be fast enough? I do think that what we could do, every everybody who is aware needs to tell people, we need to talk about these things to our members of parliament make them aware that we know that we're going to hold them accountable because the faster we reverse this, limit this, whatever, the less victims we will have as a society. So let's talk about the World Medical Journal article, which you, you wrote with a couple of co-authors. I recognize Dr. John Marr, of course. He's just phenomenal. I've heard him speak a number of times. The title is Normalizing Death as Quote-Unquote Treatment in Canada. Whose Suicides Do We Prevent and Whose Do We Abet? Now, would you argue that in just the last couple of years, death has been normalized as a treatment, like as quickly as all that? What I think is that the legislation in Canada is unique and wide open and allows it to be a treatment. Like in all other countries that allow assisted suicide or euthanasia outside of terminal illness, so you're not dying already, but someone's going to end your life, the doctor has to sign off with the patient that everything has been tried and our society, our medical society, our treatments have failed the patient. Everything is in order, but the patient is still suffering intolerably. Our Canadian legislation, written first for reasonably natural foreseeable death, and now expanded with the same understanding, clearly states that treatments have to be acceptable to a patient. And so what that allows is a patient to say, well, no, I don't want to have, this is a conversation I'm having with a patient right now who I care about very much. No, I, I don't want to have psychological counseling. No, I don't want to try any medications for my depression. MADE is a treatment option that I qualify for. I'm going to go that route. 
And so the legislation has allowed it to be so. Coupled with that, you have a real abandonment by the provincial colleges of enforcing standards and safeguards. The federal government is saying, okay, well, look, we're making criminal exceptions, but the provinces need to regulate those by, by safeguards because they regulate medicine. And what you have is all the provinces allowing whatever federally is allowed to be not criminal to be the norm. So you have our college, for example, our Ontario college, in efforts to make made access easy, they have clearly prioritized access over patient safety by not having those safeguards in place of treatment, of better judgment, of looking for psychosocial suffering, for looking at the other causes of suffering and allowing made to be offered. On top of that, you have the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, CAMAP. They've just been given, I think, $3.3 million by the federal government, who have been really paving the way for legislation and lobbying this. They're partners of Dying with Dignity. And they have a document called Bringing Up Maid, in which they claim that, you know, since Maid is a viable treatment option when other treatments are not acceptable to the patient, we should be raising this as a treatment option as if with other things, if someone comes to us who qualifies and is suffering. That is terrifying. Now, what is the personal impact on physicians like yourself who oppose Maid? in having to deal with this now on a regular basis. like So what one of your co-authors, Dr. John Moir, I remember at a lecture, one of the things he stated that I found incredibly encouraging, but also very profound and hasn't been stated publicly very often, is he said, look, when I'm treating patients with mental illness, I'm never out of options. There's always something else that I can do. We never, ever give up on a patient. But now medical professionals like yourselves are forced into a position where the government has offered something you would advise against. Yeah, that's exactly the position that we are in. And I think that's why more and more doctors, after experiencing a case like this, have some symptoms of moral distress, first of all. I, I think a lot of us have a lot of distress. We, we've become very attached to our patients, right? This is a living, breathing, beautiful person in front of us. And especially for those of us who spent our whole lives, like John works with people who are the most vulnerable in community with severe mental health illness. And my job also has been to deal with patients who have a lot of life suffering dealt to them. It's a very unfair starting place in the first place and require a lot of care. And there's a lot of care to be offered. And to give people death in 90 days is a cruel, cruel temptation. It's very cruel. I just, I worry for my patients. He told one story about a patient that he'd worked with for years and then just opted for maid, right? All these hours poured, trying to alleviate suffering, offer encouragement, offer treatment, and then death at the end of the needle seems like a relief to somebody in desperation because they're not sure that things can get better. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you is because what seems so perverse to me based on my personal experience with people who have mental illness, is that we're asking somebody to make a decision, a rational decision, a final decision, you know, the most consequential decision they can make at a period in their life where their reason is being clouded by pain, where they're experiencing cognitive distortions, where they are not, as somebody with mental illness is, themselves at that moment, as you could colloquially put it. So how do we offer suicide ethically to people who are in this state? Yeah, we cannot. And basically, you're quite right. It is suicide. So the Canadian Association of Suicide Prevention has a statement on MAID that says all wanting to end your life through MAID when you're not dying is by definition suicide, the belief that things will not get better. And that is part of the kind of symptoms, the kind of things that we use to classify when someone is depressed, right? What's also very troubling, in addition to what you said, is that this will be guesswork. 
it pretends that there are people who will never get better from their mental illness. They will struggle their whole lives. I'm very sorry that there are such people. If they are, there are very few. And we have no evidence about how to guide decision-making as to who they would be. So basically, you're opening up the patient to be a victim of assessor bias against them. And any kind of bias that makes them feel that their lives are less worth living could take advantage of their suicidality to help them end their lives. So what did you find in your paper? You have sections on how this these new made regimes have impacted different communities. And so the disability community, like Inclusion Canada, if I'm not mistaken, in reviewing the testimony over the last couple of years, they've been the one community that has consistently warned of the impact that it will have on them. Other communities have been slower to speak out. In fact, all national disability organizations condemned this regime from the beginning. They understood that they would be the first victims of ableism and ageism. And we know from other studies internationally that have been published that doctors are more likely to consider you a worthy candidate for assisted suicide and euthanasia if you're over 80 or have a disability. And so actually, from the get-go, these communities, especially their organizations, have been rallying against the government, trying to show them the dangers. Indigenous communities... You know, they have so much on their plate, but every leader I've met with mental health, traditional healers from BC to Atlantic Canada and different leaders and elders, I have not met one that is not extremely worried about what this means for their people who have high rates of disability, poverty, marginalization, lack of access to care, and now are being offered made in a timely fashion with great access. I believe that most communities who have vulnerable people are against this, except for dying with dignity, which is not a disability group. It's a pretend disability group. It's not fronted or organized by people with disabilities. No, they're just suicide activists. I, I watched a debate with them back in 2013, I think, where the key advocate was arguing for a very limited assisted suicide regime. By the end of the debate, he had basically admitted that what he wanted is everything that we're discussing right now and that you discuss in your paper. The impact of people on chronic illness, because I also know many people with chronic pain and chronic illness. What did you and your co-authors find when you looked at the impact of the MAID regime on people who experience chronic pain? Even chronic pain, there's many different conditions that are hard to identify and hard to treat. Yeah, I think that also plays into lack of funding and specialty care. We have actually great pain control. We have great palliative care programs. We have the ability to control pain, and yet our government doesn't prioritize funding or care. For example, I had a gentleman with arm pain. It took a long time. I think it took a year to get him into the specialized pain clinic, and it took him another several months longer to get into a geriatrician. And he told the geriatrician, I, I'm worried that if my disability, he's talking about his arm pain gets worse, that I'm going to be placed in a long-term care home. And with that, that is what he told me and reflects the notes she sent back to me. She felt it appropriate to make a medical assistance in dying consult. After a wait, just to give you a concrete example, he sometimes waited a year for services, becoming demoralized. This geriatrician contacts the maid team, which contacts him, assesses him. I think it's within two or three weeks. It's all done, and he's been approved for maid. I think that the impact of our society not prioritizing 
chronic care, like psychiatric care is underfunded, chronic pain, pain clinics. There was a person who testified at the same special joint committee panel hour as the Nichols. You know, you shared about Alan Nichols being admitted under the Mental Health Act and then being given aid. There was someone else named Cheryl Romare, and she's actually, I think, part of dying with dignity or at least supports them. And she shared her story about chronic pain. And it was very, very sad to hear all the medication she's been on and what she's been through. But then at the end, she mentioned that she's been denied a palliative care consult multiple times because she's not dying. And so she's qualifying for MAID now. And she kind of says, you know, kind of ambivalently, maybe it would have helped, maybe it wouldn't. I was kind of thinking maybe my family could get counseling if I chose MAID because I understand the impact it would have on them and the palliative care doctors could help them but no one would give me palliative care. I think that those two examples speak exactly to what the kind of threat to people with disabilities and chronic pain are under with this regime. Well, you touched on something interesting there. I was talking to a doctor in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago, and he said that most of his colleagues at the hospitals there were extremely uncomfortable with MAID when it came in, and they just sort of rapidly got comfortable with it. He said almost in a year's time, people went from very, very uncomfortable with it to very, very, like, sort of blasé about the whole issue. But he said the impact on the families, despite some of the sort of glowing reports the newspapers will emphasize in order to somewhat glamorize the regime. He said that this is not like somebody, you know, dying of disease, dying peacefully, dying surrounded by their family. He's like, this is more akin to their loved one being taken away in a car accident, that it is extremely sudden, even though they know what's going to happen, you know, with the lethal injection, they're there, then they're not there. And it is abrupt. And he said that the, the trauma he's witnessed on the loved ones is very similar to the trauma he sees in loved ones who have somebody taken away from them abruptly as in a car accident. How have you seen this unfold for those around the people making that decision? Yeah, that doctor points out something that I think is very true. It'd be good to have some Canadian studies that show that. I know that there's a study in Switzerland that did show that there was a lot of grief and trauma around patients who chose to go there in this study. The, the aftermath on the families was huge. My understanding is that there's a reporter right now who's going to publish a story on this very issue in Canada in a big paper. So I, I hope that that comes out soon. In terms of what I see, I see that families are feeling worried about accessing healthcare now for their vulnerable people, right? So before, when people would come for care, people are now saying that they're not so sure they, can, they feel comfortable or safe in the hospital. For example, I have a patient who's passed away now. She had liver cancer. Thankfully for her, she had no shortness of breath, no pain. We were able to control that very easily. And then I asked home services to help her so that you know she could stay at home and die at home, as was her wish. And her family, she has a wonderful daughter, taking time off work to spend those days with her to kind of document life and enjoy that the time that they had left. She was in no way suicidal or asking to die. She knew she was dying. That home services team that I asked for to provide services and, and was providing good home services of support, booked a, a time to come talk to her alone, this patient of mine, and discuss medical assistance in dying. And by the end of the discussion, they had booked a maid assessor to come to the house the next morning. I was contacted and said, like, uh, you know, Dr. Kuala, you set up these home services. Is this, is this what you wanted us to consider? I was like, no, it's not what I wanted. I never asked anybody from home services to do that to you. 
and you know they were pretty upset upset that you know the little time that they had left with their mom was wasted on that she never expressed a wish to die they asked me if it would be okay to cancel that made assessor which which i said yes go please feel free to do that and then i asked them do you guys want to make a complaint maybe they need to hear that this was not appreciated and the response that came back is you know we're in a bit of a tight position these are the people that are helping us are with our mom get all of her care that we need for her to stay at home. So we don't think we're going to make a complaint, but we will go ahead and cancel that made assessor for tomorrow. And I think that this is what puts families in a horrible dilemma in our public health care system. If we don't have safe spaces, if we don't have hospices that don't provide made, if we don't have places where people might feel safe from being victims of ableism or ageism, people are not going to want to seek health care or they are and then have terrible trauma. I also have many, I've been connected with many families like the Nichols. I know the Nichols very well. I care about them a lot, who have suffered tremendously, tremendously. You know, the Nichols said in Parliament, you know, Alan asked us to bust him out, but we thought we were putting him in the safest place. We thought we were putting him in a place where he would be safe. And then they did this to him. And I've heard that repeatedly from different people. I was connected to another family in Chatham, by a neurologist. And the daughter said to me, because she was trying to be like a good daughter and accompany her father. And it happened very quickly within 48 hours. And after she realized it was a misdiagnosis, that he was acutely sick with diarrhea, like, is this a good time to make kind of that choice? And she's plagued by like the thought, why didn't I do something? So there's also this guilt along with this trauma that is accompanying these families. That's very heartbreaking. Is there not something fundamentally exploitative? In any other circumstance, the idea of approaching somebody who's sick and dying and going through all of these emotions and going through grief at parting with their loved ones, going through extreme guilt often that their loved ones are taking care of them. Those of us who have loved ones who've experienced this would never say, oh, you know, we have to do this. No, it's it's a privilege that you get to do. But if you're on the receiving end of the help, of course, you know, there's often, often a lot of guilt there. And then to present this to them in those circumstances seems to defy everything we know about mental health and exploiting those in certain situations. Like it kind of really hearing stories like this and the ones you've just related are not the only ones I've heard. It really feels like they're vultures. I would agree, you know, that other jurisdictions with broader legislation, it is illegal to raise made as a treatment option. It is still an exceptional procedure and must be patient initiated. But the fact that it's even there, like raising made is horrible, horrible enough, like with the veterans or as with my patients or is happening, my understanding is in different regions, it's become the norm because certain doctors start to think, like you mentioned that doctor, I think you said who was in Ottawa, they're kind of like, well, kind of normal. Maybe they're removed enough that they don't really understand what's going on too. And they have these kind of false perceptions of what's happening. But, you know, actually, I don't know if you heard, Jonathan, but Madeline Lee, I'm going on and on about this special joint committee, but the testimony in it is really quite telling. Madeline Lee, who is one of the leads at CAMAP, so she is a made assessor and provider, and she's one of the ones who's in charge of that new scientific program, testified to the federal government that our MAID regime is dangerous. And she blamed the government. She said, I have ended people's lives against my better judgment. And don't call me. That's what she said. I don't know what that's exactly the words I'm paraphrasing. But first of all, it's sad that she's ending people's lives against her better judgment. Like I wish she had not. But she's saying that, you know, basically the legislation is allowing this, but I don't think it's good. There need to be more safeguards. So I think our whole MAID regime is just... A disaster. Can you explain why the government 
seems to be so intent on ignoring these things. When the original legislation, which was a disaster, passed in 2016, I thought that it was obviously just a difference in ideology because I'm opposed to suicide for moral reasons. But the more it became clear that the disability community was speaking with one voice, that many medical professionals were raising concerns not rooted in the same moral tradition that I come from, that people were talking about all of the stories that you've just listed and more now. We've got liberal newspapers, conservative newspapers, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, international papers, all using Canada now as an international cautionary tale. And despite that, there seems to be not only no predisposition for putting on the brakes, but in fact, it seems right now that it's more likely we'll speed up into euthanasia for quote-unquote mature minors and heading towards the recommendations of Quebec. Is there any good explanation for why the government seems so intent on ignoring all of the whistleblowers who seem to be shrieking as loud as they can? Yeah, it's a very good question, Jonathan. I would say that there's several speculations I can make. Speculations, there might be more than speculation. For example, the senator ordered a parliamentary budget review on the cost savings of made up till now during the Bill C-7 hearings, which obviously showed that the government would save a lot of money if people chose MAID over care. And you can imagine if that's expanded as it has expanded outside to people who had years and years of life left who would have needed disability supports in the home and care in the home. If you eliminate all that money, you can see that the perverse disincentive there exists for the government to have made as a quick and easy option because they're filling Canadians and their obligations to provide for their care. And that's something that I think is possible. It's very dark. I hope that's not true. But, you know, you think about administrators sometimes and how they can calculate these things. And I wonder if some, it would seem since they asked for a budget review that it is something that came into someone's mind. And then I think also the other thing is that this is a very complex issue. And it's been very hard to educate reporters or parliamentarians on this issue because of the misinformation. You know, Dying with Dignity has a myths page that they've been promoting heavily saying that, you know, it is impossible to get made if you have a disability on the basis of poverty or no house. Despite patients themselves saying that they did get approved and that's the reason for choosing death, apparently dying with dignity is promoting that it's a myth. But dying with dignity is a very powerful and rich lobby group that somehow also has charitable status, is my understanding, oh, grief. and meets with the government regularly. This is my understanding from different senators saying, you know, we have consulted with this group, right? So Dying with Dignity is their main consultant for trying to understand the issue. Well, good luck with understanding this issue when you have a group that has a page saying it's a myth to get made for, for disability based on poverty because they're choosing it for poverty when it's happening, right? So I think a lot of the parliamentarians have probably been misled. I think that the majority of them had goodwill, to be honest, and thought that this was going to be an exceptional procedure, just like most Canadians think it is, for people who are suffering and there's nothing to offer them. I do believe that is what probably most parliamentarians thought they were signing on to. Even the day before the Made for Mental Illness vote, I was like spending my whole day on the phone talking to different parliament offices and they didn't understand. They didn't understand what they were voting for. It's really quite shocking, the lack of understanding of these complex issues that parliamentarians get to vote on and get decided for all Canadians. Yeah, I know. I know you can't respond to this, but like the reason that that frustrates me so much is that you have to be like intentionally and extraordinarily useless to vote on something without researching the mental health implications of it right we shouldn't be listening to dying with dignity we should be listening to mental health experts who explain what the proactive offering of made means what the invitation to suicide means right 
Well, what I can say about that objectively is that there was no fulsome discussion, right? So initially when this Bill C-7 was introduced, mental illness was excluded as a sole diagnosis to choose this. And Minister Lametti had initially said it's because, you know, they're vulnerable group and suicidality could implicate all the, the, the actual real talking points it mentioned, even though it was known that ideologically he wanted it all, it was excluded. And so during the House hearings, the committee hearings, wasn't really touched upon because it wasn't part of the bill. And then when the Senate heard this issue, you have Dalfon and Carignan are saying, well, it's going to go to the courts and come back and we can't exclude people with mental illness as discrimination. And so they add this Senate amendment that the Liberals, when it gets back to Lametti, he chooses to keep, right? He discarded Wallen's advanced directives, but he kept Kutcher's mental illness amendment, changed it to a two-year sunset clause, and then forced a same-day vote on the MPs, right? So the Conservatives had had, I think, two press conferences saying that they were going to debate this. This was basically a new bill. They were going to debate and debate. And then the Liberals pulled a closure motion and forced a vote after three hours. And it was basically the Bloc and the Liberal that voted together to pass it. To be fair to them, not that I feel that they deserve fairness, but they didn't have very much time. So what has the government's response been to the reality that we seem to have a couple of news stories every week, by my count, in newspapers internationally and nationally saying that people are opting to kill themselves because they don't have the resources? Like I've, I've had people call me because I've written about this. I've actually gotten phone calls from people who have been approved for MAID. And like it's sort of using that approval as a backstop. Like if I can't buy myself a new motorized wheelchair, if I can't get this, if I can't get home care, then I'll just kill myself. Like I've talked to these people personally. And so why has there been almost no response to all of those concerns, despite the fact that they are like the press is finally doing the work that they should have been doing back in 2015 and 16. And they're finally asking the questions they should have asked, you know, five, six years ago. So better late than never. The press is actually covering these stories, but the government doesn't seem to be responding to these stories. You have a prime minister who loves to talk about injustices in the U.S., but won't talk about institutional injustices here in Canada. Yeah, I agree. There are several things about that. I think that the parliament is slowly educating itself internally. I can just say from talking to different parliamentarians that their position might have changed on this over the years by by learning. I wonder how the federal cabinet is going to respond to this. The more that we bring it up with our MPs, our MPPs, the more they hear about it from the public and the media hopefully will help cause public outrage. They will have to change their talking points. Already we've seen So I testified in Parliament in May at the Special Joint Committee. And honestly, it was a shit show, if I could say that. Like, they were talking over us, pretending we didn't exist, you know, kind of berating some of the speakers, raising cautions. And some of them are still doing that. But for the most part, there's been a change of tone. One of the worst parliamentarians for this, Hedy Fry, who asks yes or no questions that are loaded and airiness and forces people to answer because she has no time for to, for the, to really hear them. She decided to monologue. We're in a session. She had no one else to talk to or to give her fake answers that she wanted. And she, for the first time, went on like, you know, people are criticizing us for this. But, you know, basically she's saying we had to do this because of the Carter case. And I had the privilege of meeting with a federal cabinet minister a few weeks ago. And there was something of that too, like kind of changing of the way that this is being expressed. Not that we're helping Canadians here, but we had to do this. So I'm hoping that that signals a change in position, that they're working behind closed doors to do something because this is a disaster.
Final question is, I know you've been doing a lot of heavy lifting on this, as well as a bunch of other doctors and medical professionals, your co-authors on this paper. What can ordinary Canadians do who look at this and feel like there really isn't much that they can do, right? Who look at the testimony that's being heard, supposedly, by the parliamentarians, by the, you know, the disability community. It seems sometimes that the worst possible stories that are clear illustrations of where the slippery slope has led us have already been told and have already been published and that there isn't anything else people can do to push back. Do you have anything for listeners to do that would be genuinely productive? I don't think people are lost causes. So for example, the parliamentarians, I don't actually think that they all have bad will. I think that they're sometimes limited in what they can do. But I do think talking to your MPP, talking to your MP is helpful. I do think writing op-eds and trying to you know, influence public discussion the way you do, Jonathan, is extremely important. I think that there's another element here that is very, very important that is definitely also the responsibility of all of Canada. And that is we have to make it so that people don't want made. And that's very difficult because all of us do have acute times of despair and the timeline that you can get it in is too quick. But what I mean is that we need to all be enriching community life. So people that feel like life is meaningful, that has purpose, that they have meaningful relationships are less likely, even when they become suicidal, to choose that. They're more likely to confide in someone and get support and have help overcome that. And in terms of outcomes or prognosis of people who struggle with mental health, having that kind of feeling loved and included and having some sort of purpose in society I don't mean productivity, I mean purpose. And I'll I'll give you a quick example after I finish. But I think all of us have to support people who have disabilities around us, people who need our time. We need to give it to them. We can't help everybody. But if we help the circle around us, the people that have been placed in our lives, very soon we'll find that our society is more positive. Because when I'm saying that, you know, suicide increases in times of despair and despairing messaging, suicide also decreases when there is a a flooding of positive messages into society. And so we have to continue to be that to the people around us, offering that kind of love that we can to each person in front of us in whatever practical or whatever way that we can, understanding we all have demands on our time because we're all limited. But if we all do this together, the impact can be profound. Just to say, like, for example, I was asked at a conference where I gave a talk the other day about advanced directives and dementia and you know, people with dementia, like they're going to end up in long-term care homes and be neglected. And shouldn't we just allow them to have these advanced directives? It was very personal to me. My father has dementia and has just moved in with us, I think, a few months ago after not being able to cope at home. I'm pretty sure most people would look at my dad and be like, that is tragic. My father used to run a huge business, like 90 offices, and would visit maximum security prison and do all those kinds of social work. And now he cannot remember a conversation that we had five minutes ago. And so people could look at my father and think he's better off dead. I would say this is like a glorious time for my father in his life. He gets to live with us, with his grandkids who are aware of his needs. And he spends a lot of time holding his hand and sitting with him and talking to him and willing to explain things over and over again. And we're all called to do that on some level to the people who are just in front of us. But that's what I would say is that we all have to do that at minimum. So go visit your grandparents. Go visit your grandparents, yes. And if you can, bring them into your home. (laughs) Well, Ramona, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Ramona Coelho. Thank you so much for listening to this program. If you'd like to check out other programs, head over to LifeSiteNews.com, click on the podcast tab, and there you'll find other interviews and conversations just like this one. Thank you for joining us this week. We do hope you'll join us again next week.